This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to explore important trends, technologies, topics, and really any news of consequence that's shaping the larger oil and gas and energy industries. As we maneuver today's topic, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com. For more information on our solutions and services, but also for more opportune content, including episodes of the show and other white papers, blogs, articles, etc. You can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So today's episode is going to mix things up. Obviously, I'm your go-to host for the show, but sometimes we bring in some internal hosts to guide discussion because, well, look, folks, they're the subject matter experts, not me, right? So today we are going to be welcoming Steve Hendrickson as the host for today's conversation. Steve is the president of Ralph E. Davis, an opportune company. He's going to be chatting with Dan Cole and Daniel Rojo, who are both managing directors of Opportune Partners. I'll go ahead and let Steve break down the rest of the conversation here, but it's going to be a juicy one. Steve, take it away. Hi, thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here, and I'm very excited to be able to spend a little time with a couple of uh, recent additions to the Opportune family. Uh, Joining me today is uh, Daniel Rojo and Dan Cole. These gentlemen are both managing directors in Opportune Partners. And maybe before we get started and talk a little bit about what their perspectives and outlook for the M&A and A&D market, uh, particularly in the upstream, are, we can get a moment and uh, ask them a little bit about their background. So, Daniel, if you if you don't mind, maybe give us a little overview of of your career and how you've um, come to find yourself working here for Opportune Partners. Sure, happy to. Thanks, Steve. Uh, my background's historically been on the upstream side of things. Uh, shortly after grad school, uh, spent a little bit of time on the buy side and the consulting side of the business, uh, but ultimately started within A and D, uh, helping start the platform at BNP Paribas. Uh, back in 2011, ultimately made the transition to Wells Fargo through the sale of BNP Paribas' uh, upstream portfolio, really the credit book, to Wells Fargo in 2012. Um, spent the last 11 years at Wells Fargo, most recently as the head of the A&D practice there, where uh, I led a team of cross-disciplined uh, technical and financial experts advising on you know north of $40 billion of upstream and uh, M&A transactions, like I said, over the greater part of, of a decade. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's great. Dan, Dan Cole, I'm going to, just for our listeners' benefit, I'm going to refer to Dan and Cole as Dan and Dan Daniel Rojo as Daniel so we can keep everybody straight. So, Dan, a little bit of your background. Thank you, Steve. I have a, a slightly different background. I'm actually technical by background, got a, a master's and undergraduate degree in geology, Started my career uh, working for Chevron, spent about five years there in, uh, in Appalachia and, and other bases, working predominantly uh, on, on shale assets. 
uh, made the transition over to um, A&D Advisory uh, about six years ago when I joined the UBS team, ultimately, you know, leaving there as, as head of the A&D group to join uh, the Opportune Partners practice with Daniel uh, to create an, an energy-focused uh, investment bank and advisory practice uh, here at, at Opportune Partners. Yeah, great. That's appreciate that. That's excellent. Um, I thought today, as we go through this conversation about what the state of the M&A market and the A&D markets are in upstream oil and gas, maybe we'd set the stage a little bit by y'all's perspective of what's going on in the larger global macro environment, that is, things around the state of the economy, the outlook for um, growth in the economy, where interest rates are and potentially going, and and perhaps commodity prices. So maybe, Daniel, I get you to start on on in that broad sense and, you know, feel free to pick any one of those subjects and let's uh, hear what you have, you know, what your thoughts are. Yeah. Maybe I'll touch on a couple of things that are probably most germane to our industry and ultimately impact uh, the A&D market more broadly. And those being uh, interest rates and inflation, right? I mean, I think from an interest rate perspective, you know, as, and we just got another 75 basis point bump announced, uh, earlier this afternoon, but as interest rates you know, continue to rise in an effort to fight inflation, naturally the way that ultimately matriculates down to the A&D market is just the overall cost of capital and the cost of uh, underwriting acquisitions. And so as interest rates uh, continue to increase, the cost of debt associated with capitalizing an acquisition, just generally doing business increases, which has a inverse effect to valuations, number one. Uh, number two, you know, what we're hearing from clients as well is that there's less less capital availability on the debt side to help finance acquisitions. And as a result, you know, some buyers are having to over-acquitize acquisitions in order to get those deals closed. Uh, on the inflation side of things, again, it all comes down to just the cost of doing business. Um, and I'd say over the last 18 to 24 months, you've seen a pretty meaningful increase particularly on the oil field services side, although we are from a commodity pricing environment in a great spot, both on the oil and gas side, we are starting to see uh, cost creep within the oil field services sector that's starting to cut into uh, rates of return, uh, number one. Number two, just the overall availability of some of the uh, services uh, is becoming further and further or harder and harder to, to come by. Right. You mentioned um, prices being in a pretty good spot. And I was wondering, Dan, if you had any thoughts about where commodity prices are. And I know from some of the work that I'd seen you done do previously that you had made some interesting observations about volatility in prices and perhaps uh, how those how that affects um, buyer seller psychology. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, anytime there's major price volatility, either upwards or downwards, it has the effect of increasing the bid ask spread across uh, across A and D transactions. One thing that's marked about the current situation is the degree of backwardation in strip price. So it it has been over the last four to uh, six months since the since the price ran up some of the most severe backwardation we've seen over the last twelve year period and. This in itself also acts to 
create a little bit of a, a bid ass spread. One because you know a a DCF valuation that's applied to an asset may yield a cash flow multiple, which is obviously based on on current cash flow, whereas the DCF is is based on uh, you know the full stream of cash flows, including integrating the extreme backwardation in, in both oil and gas creates a major disconnect uh, between a cash flow multiple and a DCF valuation, which further adds the bid ask spread, right? And a general kind of perception in the market that, uh, you know, oil price will remain fairly robust uh, uh, for the medium to likely long term, and that it's it's unlikely that the, you know, prices in the 50 to $60 range that are contemplated by the tail of the strip will, will actually come to fruition. Uh, at least to the degree that uh, that that the strip price is baking in, and therefore, it uh, it adds to the the bid ask spread because you know buyers are are typically unable, particularly debt providers are definitely unable to underwrite anything more aggressive than strip, and sellers are are looking at that backwardation and having trouble uh, rationalizing divesting into that. Do you think you know one thing I didn't mention in the outset, which has been I think pretty significant macro factor is the the war in Ukraine. Um, would you agree or do you have any th- uh, comments on how that's influencing prices and how that might be being thought about in the uh, forward pricing? Yeah, I, I'm not a really an expert per se on, on geopolitics, you know, type uh, type situation. But, you know, obviously there's a near term uh, perception that demand is going to continue to increase due to the the reduced supply coming out of Russia, you know, the world's third largest oil and gas producer. Uh, the fact that um, you know that could be a more long-term type situation, and, and particularly the the inability of Europe to heat itself over the winter, given the lack of gas supply, uh, may lead to runaway prices not only in that local market but you know flow through globally. So I think that there's you know potential questions that when you know the the Russia Ukraine conflict uh, resolves itself, and presumably the markets you know reopen and normalize going from Russia to Europe. Will the supply come back into balance with demand? Um, you know, my my current perception is no. We're seeing demand, you know, barring a major reception or sorry recession, continue to go up into the right through time. Uh, you know, energy transition has obviously taken, you know, gigawatts and power uh, uh, off the table that would otherwise be dedicated to oil and gas. But the continued increasing increased demand for power overall has led to a continued increasing demand for oil and gas. So, you know, there, there's a, a possibility some of that's baked into the strip. But, you know, I think largely everyone sees uh, demand, at least over the five to 10 year period, continue to increase for oil. Okay, great. Well, with those kind of introductory thoughts about, and, and I'm sure there's a lot more going on in the world in these items that we touched on, but I think those are probably some of the real significant factors anyway. Perhaps we can turn our attention to then how current owners of assets, whether they're management teams of companies or just owners of assets, are looking at the A&D market. Um, and I guess the question I would ask is, uh, is this perceived to be a good time to sell or is there some uncertainty um, and maybe or certain types of owners 
see this as a good market while others might not. Uh, Daniel, any thoughts about that? Sure. I, I'd really bucket kind of the asset profile. Obviously, these are highly a, a generalist type of comment, but you, know, you have your you know, PDP weighted assets and your growth or more development heavy uh, positions. I'd say in terms of where we've seen some efficiency within the market, um, in terms of the types of deals that have transacted are kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. You've seen PDP weighted mature cash flowing deals transact uh, in the market and think about deals like uh, in the Barnett, for example, XTO just sold out of their position to BKV. Uh, ConocoPhillips sold a big position out of the Midcon, just as another example. Uh, and the reason that those types of deals are transacting and transacting efficiently is that number one, you know, from a commodity price standpoint versus where we were 18 to 24 months ago, you know, PDP weighted assets can transact at relatively muted multiples, call it two to two and a half times NTM cash flow. But on an absolute dollar basis, you're still transacting at well above where you had those investments uh, marked, call it 18 to 24 months ago. So that's number one. Uh, number two, just as the industry has continued to mature, you've seen pockets of capital uh, emerge to ultimately warehouse those more mature and cash flowing streams. Uh, Kane Anderson Income Fund is a great example of that. They were kind of ahead of the curve, raising dedicated capital and teams to pursue production and more mature production. You've also had some public strategies like Diversified and Crescent Energy emerge that are not 100% focused on harvesting cash flow. They do have some budget for incremental development, but the thesis remains uh, to buy more mature, shallower declining production. So that's number one. Again, that's the PDP bucket. On the opposite end of the spectrum for uh, growth weighted assets and inventory specifically, uh, the quality of the inventory still very much matters. You know, despite the public uh, rhetoric and certainly the investor focus on free cash flow and no to moderate growth within public platforms, public equity platforms. Um, what's really driving MA and what's really driving AD is the quality of the inventory intrinsic in the deals that are transacting. So you take deals like a Tug Hill, for example, in Appalachia, um, some of the larger uh, Midlands MA and/or AD transactions that have recently taken place. Uh, Diamondback certainly been part of that conversation. Uh, you had Centennial and Colgate come together in the Delaware Basin, again, another example. But in all those instances, the common theme was inventory where you had tier one rock and by association, uh, tier one economics associated with those transactions. Where we're seeing a more inefficient market is what I will call tier two or tier three inventory. And I don't use that as a, as a way to uh, necessarily distinguish bad deals. It's just when you force rank rates of return economics across the lower 48, your buyers are still being very discerning in terms of tier one versus tier two and tier three. Uh, today, you know, tier two and tier three rock still works because prices uh, certainly support continued development and, and support very economic rates of return. But on the flip side, you know, buyers and strategic buyers at that are being very uh, cautious about paying up for inventory in those tier two, tier three portions uh, 
of the lower 48. And as a result, you get a lot of deals that are hung. You get a lot of potential sellers that ultimately decide, hey, we're better off drilling these deals ourselves and converting inventory to PDP and re-emerging with a package that's much more PDP weighted. And when there's a little bit more parity between how buyers and sellers are underwriting, you know, future inventory. Okay. That, yeah, that's great. Um, you made a comment um, toward the end there about the, uh, about some operators beginning to think, well, maybe, you know, we thought we were going to develop this, uh, hold it for a while, get ready for a sale. Now we realize we've got a lot of un developed inventory that may not really get much value in the marketplace and we'd like to develop it. So I'm wondering, Dan, if you've got any thoughts about how that aligns with the free cash flow model that many companies have adopted. And is this going to, are some folks going to have to move away from that, seek additional capital? If so, uh, you know, before they sell and and if so, how do you imagine they might uh, pursue that? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the, the free cash flow model has, you know, dictates that an operator doesn't outspend its, its cash flow, right? It returns a portion of its cash flow to shareholders or, you know, equity holders in the case of a private company. And then, you know, the remainder of the capital can then be dedicated to growth or development, right? And so what we've seen broadly across public companies, if you just take a big average, is about you know, somewhere between 10 to 25% of the capital being returned to investors, about 50% of the capital being invested, you know, some way through the drill bit, then the remaining 25, you know, going into some form of, of debt pay down or, uh, or, or stock buyback, essentially a return of, of capital in some form there. So it's, it's much more market the degree to which capital is being returned. And what this just means is is inventory is being developed at a at a slower pace, right? And what that means overall, when you look at the inventory stack, is your five year, your ten year plan. You don't see necessarily an inventory crisis going. And so when you look uh, as a large, say, public aggregator at to acquire using a portion of that cash or or even stock another company. It's got to compete with your existing inventory, and, and as I'm sure you know, we're all aware, most people think their their kid, their child is beautiful, right? And and so it's difficult sometimes to put others' inventory in front of your own. But frankly, in a lot of cases, these, these main guys have an abundance of, of tier one inventory given the lower development pace. So you know that's a that's a, a challenge currently. That, um, that that sellers ultimately need to overcome. And so, you know, one, that'll get resolved as inventory continues to get depleted. Um, the other element is simply where returns are at right now. So if you've got, you know, call it 25% of your capital going back to shareholders, you can't exceed your free cash flow, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to acquire a company with a full cycle return of 20 to 30% with cash? Or are you going to drill your 70 to 100 percent IRR locations, which which we're seeing currently, uh, even in, in many tier two and tier three inventories uh, on basin? So operators are particularly the large publics electing to use a greater percentage of stock, generally speaking. Obviously, the, di- the Diamondback transaction is uh, is what I would call an outlier in, in the last kind of 10 major transactions we've seen. And that's a little more challenging than the energy market. Obviously, everybody wants cash. They want that quick exit. 
and uh, it it you know creates an interesting dynamic for those that have uh, inventory or even those larger assets that are looking to to tap a public exit. Okay, well, I think with that answer, this is a great place for us to pause part one. We've been speaking with Daniel Rojo and Dan Cole about the state of the M&A market in the energy industry. I'm going to turn it back over to Daniel Litwin, and we will resume with part two in another episode. Like Steve said, folks, that's it for part one of this episode. So make sure that you are staying tuned for part two as we continue to break down our conversation with Dan and Daniel. Man, a lot of a uh, lot of Daniels on this episode, right? Steve is going to be back hosting part two of the conversation, and we're going to be continuing our conversation around the state of A and D and M and A in the oil and gas industry, breaking down some of those macroeconomic factors that are shaping up the market and also offer some strategies and perspectives for our audience. So make sure that you stay tuned for part two. Should be coming soon. Make sure that you don't miss it by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to E2B, Energy to Business. You can also head to our website, opportune.com, for more information and other supplementary content on the stuff we've been breaking down on today's episode. We'll see you on part two of this conversation with Dan Cole and Daniel Rojo, both managing directors of Opportune Partners with host Steve Hendrickson coming up soon. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B.